Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Stop Nairobi Station. Porter, would you remove my luggage from the upper deck? Right away, sir. There's a good man. Nothing like the fetid air of the African countryside to remind me why I left home. Perfectly ghastly. Ah, Major Ramsey Hill. I didn't expect to see you here. Lord Hay? Good to see you, old chap. It's been a dog's age. How's the wife? I think you'd know better than I. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, what could you possibly mean by that? I think we can cease with the formalities, Jocelyn. The idle banter may work on the women, but the same won't fly with me. I know about the drinks, the drugs, the late-night parties. I know you've been seeing my wife. It wasn't like that, old chap. I don't know who you've been hearing from, but... I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. To hell with husbands? Wasn't that always your motto? And dear old Molly never was good at keeping a secret. That's the downfall of men like you. You think you're so clever, but you didn't even bother to cover your tracks. This is all just a ludicrous misunderstanding. To hell with you. To hell with both of you. I hope you're happy with what you've taken, Jocelyn, because you can keep it. You bought the dog, now buy her the kennel. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Jocelyn Hay, the 22nd Earl of Errol. If you like the show, we'd appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network or on our website, parcast.com. Today, we're going to discuss the hedonistic life and mysterious death of Jocelyn Hay, a member of the British aristocracy who was killed in 1941. Although his life has been the subject of several books and movies, His murder was most certainly real. And almost 80 years later, the case is still unsolved. Join us as we examine the lives of the friends and enemies of Jocelyn Hay and the many motives they may have had for murder. During their brief respite between two world wars, Britain's elite upper class lived the most luxurious, decadent lives money could buy as the world scraped away around them. A lot of this had to do with keeping up respectability. 
The noble elite had gotten used to a certain way of living through the 1920s, and a global stock market crash in 1929 wasn't going to stop them from keeping up appearances. This was especially true for the aristocrats that had grown up during the 1920s and reached adulthood in the lean years of the 30s. They had gotten used to their parents' money and prestige, and they were desperate to show off their own affluence. Think Downton Abbey-style living with Jay Gatsby-style parties. Jocelyn Hay would grow up at the epicenter of this cultural shift, caught between respectability and hidden bankruptcy. Jocelyn Victor Hay was born in 1901, the first child of Victor and Lucy Hay, Earl and Countess of Errol. He was heir to a long line of Scottish nobility stretching back as far as 1453 and had the genteel upbringing to prove it. However, by the 1900s, that pedigree no longer automatically came with wealth. His father made the family's money through his career as a diplomat, and the younger Lord Hay was expected to follow in his footsteps. To that end, he was sent off to study at the prestigious Eton College, where he quickly became popular due to his good looks, smooth talking, and liberal use of his father's money. All right, lads, time for another round. Who's paying? Come off it. We all know Joss is good for it. Isn't that right, old chap? Good old Joss. Yeah, Joss. Sounds a bit easy for you lot. Well, we can't all be dukes of what's-his-name, can we? Come on, Jocelyn, be a pal. It's an earldom, but I see your point. How about we make this a bit more interesting for me? All right, let's have it. What's your deal? You see that handsome dame in the corner? Next round says I can steal a kiss from her in under a minute. (laughs) A looker like that and a bum like you? Joss, old chap, you're on. Okay, on my mark. You're not gonna wait till he gets over there? One minute, he says, and a minute I'll give him. Ready? Go. Okay, I get the idea. Pardon me, miss, but my friends bet around that I couldn't get a kiss from you in under a minute, and I'm afraid I'm short on cash. (laughs) What? Is that a line? No thanks. I'll make sure he sends a drink your way. Top shelf. And I'll leave you alone for the rest of the night. You make a fine argument. I make a better kisser. Don't get too cocky. But despite his father's wishes, Hayes' time at Eton didn't last long. He had only been there two years before the college dismissed him. Or rather, due to his father's status, politely asked him to leave. When asked later at parties why he had been dismissed, Hay would give a vague and evasive but entertaining answer, usually involving a Jewish boy and the purchase of a motorcycle. But to those who knew him, the reason behind his dismissal was fairly obvious. He had no interest in studying, only partying. Back in 1914, even more so than today, college was less about getting an education and more about making friends and connections. Especially when you are expected to use those connections to get a well-paying job to pay off the family debt. As the charming and handsome heir to an earldom, Hay was naturally popular, and he used his social status to get into every party that he could. But it was still important that he fit in, which at a boys' school like Eton meant a lot of drinking, drugs, sexual experimentation, and eventually fist fights. Although we don't know the specifics of Hay's dismissal, we can assume it may have had something to do with the fist fights that would often break out at these parties, 
often involving dozens of drunken young men trying to prove their masculinity. Hayes' group was a rowdy bunch, especially after a few fingers of gin. The property damage was likely conspicuous. Still, despite the black mark on his record, his father's influence was more than enough to get him a job as an honorary attaché to Berlin as a fresh-faced 19-year-old. Now, Joss, you know that this is a very important meeting with very important heads of state. Yes, father. There'll be no talk of drinking, no talk of drugs, and no talk of late-night rendezvous with the young ladies of Windsor. I wouldn't dare, Father. In fact, you needn't say anything to the Chancellor at all. Just hold my papers, shake hands when instructed, and nod politely. Of course, Father. For God's sakes, Joss, do not fall asleep in your chair again. If we have a repeat of your last hangover, I'll be the laughing stock of Berlin. Jocelyn Hay could have settled there, in a cushy diplomatic position under his father's tutelage, free to climb the ranks and earn back his respectability. But if you've been paying attention to the story so far, you know there's no way that would ever happen. And it was all because of a girl. In 1923, Lady Adina Sackville was a modern beauty. She was thin and petite, wearing only the choicest clothes of the era and having only the richest men on her arm. She was famous for walking barefoot whenever she could, just to show off her Cinderella small size three feet. She was 30 years old, eight years older than Hay, and already married to her second husband, Captain Charles Gordon. But Sackville never let a little thing like a husband get in the way of her flirtation. In fact, she had many boyfriends during her first two marriages, to the point where her infidelity was basically an open secret in high society. Hay was immediately smitten by the older woman, and they entered into a whirlwind romance that ended in Sackville's second divorce. Need a light? Well, well, if it isn't the esteemed Lord Hay, I've heard much about you from your father. It's all true, but it isn't as bad as he says. Father always embellishes the wrong bits, and he never includes my witty repartee. He may have also oversold the modesty. <laughs> Chop, chop, darling. This thing's still unlit. Much better. So what's a well-to-do young man like yourself doing out here on the balcony with a drag like me? I prefer the atmosphere out here. And well-to-do parties aren't really my thing. So I've heard. You hear a lot for a self-proclaimed drag. I dabble in the well-to-do. From what I hear, you do a lot more than dabble. Mm, I see. Does that bother you? On the contrary, it rather excites me. Don't get too excited. My husband's just inside. Oh, I'm sure I don't mind. However, despite having left her husband, Sackville wouldn't be able to marry Hay quite as easily. She had already earned a reputation for her numerous indiscretions and lack of commitment to monogamy, earning her the nickname The Bolter. Hay recently kicked out of Eaton for bad behavior wasn't much better off in aristocratic social circles. And news of the scandalous affair spread quickly. Soon, Sackville and Hay were unwelcome at the parties they had once frequented, and it was clear that the gossip would only continue if they stayed in England. It soon became clear that there was only one real solution. They had to remove themselves from high society altogether.
Our story will continue in a moment after the break. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's continue the story. In 1924, 23-year-old Jocelyn Hay and his new wife, Lady Adina Sackville, were looking to leave British high society behind for something a little more forgiving of both their backgrounds and their vices. When she had been with her second husband, Charles Gordon, Sackville had lived for some time at his estate in Kenya, so she was probably the first to suggest the move. Right here, just a few miles outside of Nairobi. <laughs> yes, of course. Capital idea. We'll move to the deepest, darkest Africa and escape all of our problems. <laughs> Darling, please. It isn't deepest, darkest Africa. It's on the coast. Dear God, you're serious? Charles and I had a little house there among the mountains. They call it Happy Valley. What's there to be so happy about? Sand? Lions? Bushmen? Oh, please. Nothing so uncivilized. It's all the comforts of home, thousands of miles from prying eyes and anyone else who gives a fig about propriety. I only got a glimpse of it myself, but just think of it, Jocelyn. The beautiful carnage the two of us would wreak without worrying about what mummy and daddy might think. Wine. Yes. Your pick of women. All right. And dope as far as the eye can see. All right, you've got me listening. Now pour me another. I might even say yes. When you picture the 1930s, a few prominent things might come to mind. Bread lines, joblessness, hunger, homelessness. After the stock market crash of 1929, the rosy hue of the flapper era came to a shocking end. The 1930s were marked by the looming dread of the Great Depression, which spiraled out of control in America and eventually spread to the entire global economy. It seemed that everyone, rich and poor, had to pull their belts a little tighter during the era. At least, almost everyone. In one small area in the Kenyan Aberdare Mountains, the decadence of the Roaring Twenties refused to die out with the rest of the world. In this secluded hideaway, Hedonism and excess were alive and well as the world starved away outside. And like with any other party that goes on for too long, things started to get very strange very quickly. But unlike most other parties, this one turned deadly. This was the home of the Happy Valley set, a group of mostly British expats living in colonial Kenya and Uganda from the 1920s throughout the early 1940s. 
Many of these ludicrously wealthy aristocrats sought warmer climates in the African countryside and, more importantly, escaped from the rigid social mores of the British elite. In Happy Valley, they were free to be as wild, drunk, and promiscuous as they wanted, without fear of judgment from the rest of the upper class. But Happy Valley was far from a paradise. Although the Happy Valley set saw themselves as free from rules and responsibilities, their own personal dramas began to take center stage. Rivals could turn to lovers and friends to bitter enemies over the course of one drunken evening. Bonds of love and friendship were constantly being formed and broken at a breakneck pace, and grudges were as fashionable as fedoras and bobbed hair. And with a cast of characters as colorful and bizarre as the ones who lived in Happy Valley, anything could happen in the blink of an eye, even murder. But for now, Happy Valley was still a sweet escape for those scorned by the British elite. Sackville and Hay married in late 1923 and immediately began preparing their move from the English shores to the African mountains. They left everything behind. Hay left his job at the foreign office, and Sackville left her two young sons in the care of their father. They weren't about to let something like family get in the way of their fresh start. By 1925, they had settled on their dream home, a mansion named Clouds, in the valley of the Aberdare Range in Kenya. It was a bright, beautiful house with multiple guest rooms and a large, open courtyard. The mountainous area around Clouds was notoriously difficult to manage by car, especially when leaving the estate. The message was clear. If you were invited to a Jocelyn Hay house party, you better be prepared to stay there all night. Lady Adina, truly, it's been delightful, but I really must set out for the night. Mm, nonsense. It's been raining all evening. The escarpment is much too wet for you to leave now. It was only a light drizzle, and I believe it has cleared up by now. I'm sure my driver can take me. Your driver can do nothing of the sort. If you left now only to crash into a twisted wreck on the slopes of the Kenyan mountainside, why, I would be simply inconsolable. Joss, darling, make sure our third guest bedroom is ready. I couldn't impose on you like that, Lady Adina. And what kind of host would we be if we didn't have a room to spare? This is Kenya, man, not the uncivil British Isles. Another sherry? Uh, well... If, if you both insist. That's it, darling. And don't hesitate to call your driver inside. I'm sure he'd love a nightcap as well. While Jocelyn Hay was the man of the house, it was clear that Sackville was its true star. Hay forfeited his cushy job and what was left of his father's money when he eloped to Kenya. So most of the financial heavy lifting was done by Sackville's old money wealth. She was the one who bought Clouds and outfitted it with all the most modern and glamorous furnishings. She was also the one who organized the parties and wrote up the guest list. Hay was truly just along for the ride. Compared to the uptight and scandal-obsessed world of the British elite, Happy Valley was likely a breath of fresh air for the always unconventional Sackville. Here, she and her guests were on equal footing in a new country with new rules. Here, Sackville would let the drama of it all take center stage. And she wasn't afraid to show off her wealth and newfound freedom in any way she could. It's said that she would occasionally greet new guests to the house while bathing in her giant onyx bathtub. She would then get dressed in front of them and invite them to the dining room for an elaborate five-course meal before the real festivities began. 
All the while, she would carry on her hip a little black Pekingese she affectionately named Satan. If you were invited to a Hay and Sackville house party, you would probably know the proper way to react to Sackville's dramatics was with a courteous smile and another drink. But it still would have been quite a shock to those who were new to the Happy Valley lifestyle. Still, even Sackville's most elaborate dinner couldn't compare to the after-dinner events. As soon as the meal was finished and the plates were cleared, Sackville would bring out a large white bedsheet and a single feather. The bedsheet would be held out between the guests who would be arranged boy-girl, boy-girl. Then, each guest would take turns blowing the feather across the bedsheet until it reached one of the members of the opposite sex, at which point Sackville would declare them partners for the night and offer them one of her many guest bedrooms. It wasn't a suggestion of who would sleep with whom as much as it was a command from a woman who had never taken no for an answer. Sackville only considered a party a success if she had gotten all of her guests to swap partners or spouses for the night. And almost everyone ended up in Sackville's bed by the end of the night, so much so that her bed was referred to as the battleground. So, what did her young husband think of all of this? Well, according to most reports, Hay was in on the whole thing, encouraging the wife swapping and participating in it himself— Like Sackville, Hay wasn't much for monogamy and loved the opportunity his wife's parties gave him to sleep with as many aristocratic women as he could get his hands on. It seemed like a perfect arrangement for the both of them. Neither of them much believed in the sanctity of marriage of their own or anyone else's. Hay's motto when it came to women was famously, to hell with husbands. Attention everyone, now that you've all had your fill, it's high time we proceeded to the night's festivities. In this bowl here, I have a key to each of our guest bedrooms, and in this bowl here, I have each key's exact duplicate. Ladies will choose from the first bowl and men from the second. Choose wisely, as your choice will determine your bedmate for the night. Do with your bedmate whatever you wish. I won't tell. Lady Alice, would you do the honors of making the first pick? Of course. It looks like I have room number three. The sunroom, how delightful. Joss, as the man of the house, would you like the second pick? Of course, darling. Oh, would you look at that? I have room three as well. I suppose it's you and I for the night, Lady Alice. (laughs) (laughs) Now I say that's not fair. That's my wife you're fooling with, Lord Hay. Don't get so worked up about it, Sir Douglas. It's all in good fun. Here, you can take my wife instead. (laughs) Now, who will pick second? To Hay, cuckolding a married man was as much a part of the game as seducing a married woman. And with the booze and drugs flowing freely as water at clouds, those married women would be pliable enough to accept his advances. Hay's numerous girlfriends were no secret to his wife. In fact, one of his most prominent girlfriends, the American heiress, Alice de Jonze, often accompanied him in Sackville de Polo and country club outings. So when Sackville divorced Hay for cheating after seven years of marriage, it must have been a bit surprising. Well, it wasn't cheating in a traditional sense. At 37, Sackville was prone to just as many indiscretions as her husband. What really got to her 
was when Hay attempted to cheat her out of her family's money. Years of drinking and partying on a weekly basis didn't come cheap, and although Hay was nearly 30, he didn't have a real job to bring in money. He was a drain on Sackville's resources, and he was dragging them into debt. And even if Sackville didn't care about Hay's constant flirtation, she wasn't the only one affected by his infidelity. Hay's most recent girlfriend was a woman named Edith Maud Ramsey Hill, Molly, to her friends, wife of Major Ramsey Hill. True to his motto, Hay pursued her with no thought as to how her husband would react. Care for another drink? Oh, Lord Hay, I must say I was so taken by the proceedings that I barely noticed your arrival. It's a good party, isn't it? It's marvelous. Did you put it together yourself? That sort of thing is best kept to the lady of the house, I'm afraid. I'm simply here to make sure everyone gets appropriately knackered. And on that matter, champagne? Lovely. So, I take it you're the Lady Edith. I don't think we've been properly introduced. Uh, my friends call me Molly, actually. Your peers call you Edith, your friends call you Molly. Pray tell, do your lovers call you Maud? Lord, hey, that's hardly appropriate talk. I'm hardly an appropriate man. Or haven't you heard of me? Ah, I see by your silence that you have. It's just that, well, sir, my, my husband... Ah, 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 we'll have no talk of those who aren't here to defend themselves. I want to get to know you before the real festivities get started. The real festivities? Oh, Molly, my dear, you're in for a treat. When the Major found out what was going on between his wife and the young and handsome Hay, he didn't react well. Near the end of Hay's and Sackville's marriage, Hay went on a weekend trip outside of Nairobi. As he returned to Clouds, he was met at the Nairobi train station by Major Ramsey Hill, armed with proof of the affair and a bullwhip. He beat Hay to a pulp in front of a crowd of shocked train passengers, and tellingly, it seems that no one stepped in to stop him. The scandal of the beating, combined with the constant debt, was too much for even Sackville. By 1930, the bolter had bolted, leaving Hay alone and without an estate to call home. But not for long. Almost as soon as his divorce was finalized, Hay married his second wife, None other than Edith Ramsey Hill, the woman he had just been beaten for pursuing. Hay and Ramsey Hill moved to another palatial estate in the Happy Valley, this one named Osarian. Interestingly, Osarian was originally built for Ramsey Hill by her last husband, but would now be filled by her and her new husband, Hay. I suppose the Major thought that the beating he gave Hay was payment enough for the estate. Well, that, or he was willing to part with anything to get away from his cheating wife. And Hay, ever the cuckold, was proud to usurp the Major's place. Osarian was a slightly more modest affair than Clouds, but still the picture of exotic luxury. The Great Depression was quickly taking hold across the globe, but you wouldn't be able to tell that by looking at Osarian. And even without Sackville's guiding hand... The wild parties continued at Osarian. And Ramsey Hill rushed to fill the shoes of her flamboyant predecessor, eager to please her new husband. Do you think the guests will prefer a gin cocktail, or should we just bring out champagne to start? The hooch was never the important bit, Molly dear. But our guests will be expecting a certain sensibility. What did Lady Adina drink? Whatever was closest. But what did she serve the guests? 
I don't know. She never thought about it so much. I'm sure something will come to you. Champagne it is, then. Well, on the other hand... Uh... The next few years passed much as they had before for Hay, albeit on a smaller scale. There were still parties, there were still drugs, but times were hard, even for the Happy Valley set. Now that the scandal of his first marriage had dissipated, Hay began traveling to England more and more often. On a visit in 1934, he joined the British Union of Fascists, feeding into his fear of outsiders entering Britain and apparently forgetting that he, too, was a resident of a foreign country. Hay's affinity for fascism was probably not surprising to those who knew him, since he was a big proponent of white superiority and was horribly racist to his black African servants. He would often go months without paying them, and while they worked at his home, he would constantly berate them and swear at them in Swahili. As World War II loomed on the horizon, Nativist fear-mongering was reaching its peak, and even though Hay spent most of his time in Kenya, he still felt the need to weigh in on the impending war. But he wouldn't live long enough to see that he had sided with the losing team. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Now, the story continues. If Edith Ramsey Hill hadn't been well acquainted with the Happy Valley set before her move to Kenya, she certainly was by the time she married 28-year-old Jocelyn Hay in early 1930. In fact, she became perhaps too well acquainted. While most parties at Osarian started with cocktails and wine as the night wore on, more New World drugs began to change the atmosphere. Cocaine, heroin, and morphine were readily supplied and used by guests and hosts alike. Ramsey Hill's drug of choice was heroin, and she fell into a cycle of addiction that lasted long past the usual parties. In October of 1939, at age 46, she died of a heroin overdose while at a Nairobi country club. And that is precisely when I told the man, Sir, it wasn't your horse you left unattended. It was your wife! (laughs) Joss, do you think we should send someone to check on Lady Molly? She's been gone for quite some time. Ah, let her powder her nose. You know how women are. They care more for their looks than the punchline of a delightful joke. Sir, she's been in the toilet for over an hour. Lord, hey, may I have a word? Yes, Garcon, what is it? Oh, dear. I suppose you should call a doctor. One is already on his way, but it may take some time for him to travel through the mountains. Not much that can be done for it now, then. You don't want to go see her? I have a party to entertain. The rest can be dealt with later. Now, which one of you wants another round on me? If the 37-year-old Hay was affected by the death of his second wife, he didn't show it. In fact, it was only a few months after her death that he began pursuing his next conquest, another beautiful wife of a rich aristocrat. Lady Diana Broughton was yet another member of the Happy Valley set. At 27 years old, with bright blue eyes and blonde hair, she was a movie star beauty. Her husband, Sir Jock Delves Broughton, was 57 years old, 30 years her senior. Diana had married him for his money and noble title, and both of them knew it. 
This arrangement was so cut and dried that apparently the Broughtons had come to an unusual agreement about their marriage. If Diana ever fell in love with a younger man and wanted a divorce, Jock wouldn't stand in their way, but would instead provide her with a comfortable income for the next seven years. Wow, if there ever was a honeypot for the debt-riddled Jocelyn Hay, Diana was it. It was almost inevitable that a relationship would form between Diana and Hay. And by the late 1940s, the Broughtons were frequent guests at Hay's house parties. When Jock found out about the affair, he supposedly gave Hay and Diana his blessing. According to Diana's later testimony, on January 24, 1941, Jock, Diana, and Hay all dined at the Muthaiga Country Club in Nairobi, incidentally, the same place where Hay's last wife had overdosed. Thank you for the recommendation, Joss, old chap. The food here truly is excellent. I never thought I'd see a Yorkshire pudding this scrumptious outside my mother's kitchen. But here I find it on the African plain. Simply delightful. It tastes even better after a few more sips of brandy. <laughs> Doesn't everything, darling. <laughs> it does at that. To that end, I'd like to propose a toast. Joss, Diana, it's been wonderful to see the two of you together these past few weeks. It does my old heart good to see your youthful energy, your joie de vivre, your zest for life. Makes me feel like a man half my age. Now, Diana, I know I might not always be able to satisfy you in the ways that you're used to. Jock, please. But I know a man here who's ready and able to take the job. Diana, you know I believe you to be the most beautiful pearl in all of Africa. And my dearest wish is to see you happy. So you have my blessing. I'll be happy to revel in all the wine and women this country has to offer. Hear, hear. So, here's to Joss, to Diana, and to Champagne. To Champagne. By all accounts, Jock was willing to live up to his earlier promise to Diana and set her free to pursue Hay, with the added bonus of a seven-year stipend for the newly minted lovebirds. This was surely a new feeling for Hay as seducing Diana was going to be a lot easier than he expected. After their dinner at the country club, Hay and Diana wanted to go dancing. Jock, much older and with an old injury that caused him to walk with a limp, bid the lovebirds good night and told Hay to return his wife by 3 a.m. The pair left in Hay's car, danced for a few hours, and Hay dropped Diana off at her house by 2.30. As she waved him goodbye, she may not have realized it was the last time that she would see him alive. Hayes Buick was found half an hour later, several miles away, by a milkman on his way to start his early morning rounds. Hay was slumped in the front seat, dead of a gunshot wound to his temple. On a lonely road in the dark of night, it seems that there were no eyewitnesses to the crime. All investigators could tell for sure is that Hay had been shot at point-blank range, thanks to the powder burns on the side of his face. He had been killed by a single shot, apparently with little struggle. So who killed Jocelyn Hay? Well, the obvious answer was Jacques Broughton, as his wife was so flagrantly having an affair with Hay. That's the assumption investigators at the time made anyway. Jock was arrested the next morning for the murder, and stood trial later that year. However, due to lack of evidence, Jock was acquitted and set free. Still, with no other obvious culprits, 
Most of Jocelyn's friends at the time believed Jock had gotten away with murder, but as often happens, the original investigation might not tell the whole story. For one thing, it would have taken a lot of effort for Jock to have followed Hay down the road after Diana arrived at their home. Hay's Buick was found two and a half miles away from his home, at a distance that would have been impossible to cover with a limp. Another theory was that Jock had slipped down the drain pipe from the second story of his house to avoid being seen by Hay and his wife, then hid in the back of Hay's Buick until he decided to strike. Which again would have been very difficult to do with a limp. For another thing, Jock had apparently been supportive of his wife's relationship with Hay, going so far as to toast them earlier that same night. Of course, he could have been lying to save face, especially knowing how accepted extramarital promiscuity was in Happy Valley. But it still cast doubt on the accusation. And guilty or not, Jock's story didn't have a happy ending. After Hay died, Jock was shunned from the Happy Valley set. Hay's friends blamed Jock for the murder, and everyone else blamed him for bringing down the mood of the perpetual party. Jock returned to England in December of 1942 and died just a few days later of a morphine overdose. It was just a month shy of the first anniversary of Jocelyn Hayes' death. The coroners ruled it a suicide. And everyone else ruled it a confession of guilt. Ever since Jock's death, that's where Hayes' case stood, with no clear evidence or motive to point to a killer only an assumption of guilt based on a suicide. But maybe onlookers of the time were too hasty to draw conclusions based on Jock's death. After all, Jock's depression could just as easily have been explained by his dismissal from Happy Valley and his implication in his friend's murder. And it wasn't like Jock was the only one with a motive to kill Jocelyn Hay. Hay had made many enemies in his time in the Happy Valley, jilted ex-lovers, cuckolded husbands, unhappy servants, and even foreign powers, thanks to his fascist leanings. Next week, we'll discuss those enemies and break down the theories made by investigators at the time and historians alike. Join us as we try to find out exactly who shot Jocelyn Hay and what they might have gotten out of it. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jordan Lyric and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. Hey.